Hello and welcome to CAD Speaker Series Podcast. This week, CID Student Ambassador Abila Latif interviews Susan Scribner, Director of the Preparedness and Response Project at DAI. She discusses the risks that contribute to a pandemic, interventions to mitigate these risks, and how different government and non-government actors can contribute to pandemic preparedness and response. Hi, Susan. Thank you for being with us here today. With respect to our conversation, could you first tell us about DAI and the preparedness and response project that you're spearheading there? Sure, thank you. DAI is a global development firm. We work in more than 80 countries worldwide and address a wide array of development issues. Our clients include the USAID and the UK DFID, among others. The Preparedness and Response Project is a USAID-funded global project. We work in 16 countries in West Africa, East Africa, and Southeast Asia with mandate to improve preparedness and response, and we do it really through two avenues, strengthening coordination for One Health, which is the intersection of human health, animal health, and environmental health, and also contributing to national preparedness and response plans. Thank you. Your talk at the CID today is titled, Preparing for the Next Pandemic, Whose Responsibility Is It? Could you touch upon the background to give our listeners some context about our conversation? The Preparedness and Response Project from USAID is part of their Emerging Pandemic Threats 2 suite of projects, which is sort of follows a long line of support from USAID for projects to look at ways to prevent, detect, and respond to emerging infectious diseases. Okay. So getting into pandemic threat specifically, what factors cause it to spread? And what are some of the strategies that you would recommend? So the threat of pandemics, one of the big factors is that a large proportion of emerging infectious diseases are zoonotic, or diseases that move from animal populations to human populations. And some of the factors that increase the risk include environmental factors and, and degradation, and human populations that are growing and moving closer to animal populations, and also international travel. So you mentioned one factor to be like encroachment of animal wildlife habitat. So what are some of the strategies or approaches that countries that are being heavily impacted, pandemic threats are putting in place as prevention strategies? With respect specifically to encroachment on wildlife? That and other factors, yes. So with respect to that, a lot of that encroachment comes from not just increases in human population, but then the resulting increase in the demand for food, and particularly for livestock in many countries. And so government policies around livestock production can help manage how that is done in a way to minimize the environmental impact and minimize that interaction between domestic livestock and wildlife. Thank you. And how does the preparedness and response or PNR project 
strengthen or support these systems and their planning? The core of what we do is really working with governments and working across governments, promoting coordination and collaboration and leadership for One Health, this intersection of human, animal, and environmental health. And through that coordination and leadership, helping them prepare for and respond to emerging threats. So in implementing One Health, what are some of the challenges or typical challenges that you face in creating these platforms? So one of the challenges is the siloed nature of governments the world over and you know ministries of health for example don't normally interact or work with ministries of agriculture ministries of the environment and so trying to get that coordination and collaboration across government is challenging because it's not the way they typically work. And you mentioned how many countries have you worked in? So the project uh, works in has worked in 16 countries. The project. And you, in your career, have worked in about? I'm not sure what the number <laughs> is. Probably in the 20s, I would guess. So you probably have a lot of expertise by now in you know, different regions and how different systems and collaboration between them. So the next question that leads from this is, did the Ebola outbreak in 2014, being in the same year that PNR was launched at DAI, did that teach us anything? So for PNR, when the project was awarded to DAI shortly after the Ebola outbreak had started, and the original design for the project didn't have us working in West Africa, so that changed from day one, and um, but the West African countries, particularly you know the Ebola-affected countries of Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Guinea, didn't really have very much experience with avian influenza or some of the other diseases that had led other countries in East Africa and Southeast Asia to have more systems and plans for preparedness and cross-sectoral coordination. So it's been a, a steeper curve to get up in the West African countries. Wow, thank you. And so what are the next steps for PNR preparedness and response and for global health security in continuing to improve prevention, detection, and response? So PNR was awarded, you know, as is typical, a five-year project. So our focus now is really trying to institutionalize and sustain what we've done. Mm -hmm. And because all of our work has been with and through government counterparts, we think that once the government sort of adopt the approach, they've established these mechanisms for coordination that are typically referred to as One Health platforms, that that is sort of setting them up with the structure to continue to support uh, coordination, collaboration, communication, data sharing across sectors. And you know, I'm very hopeful that those mechanisms will be sustained after the PNR project ends. I'm wondering, do you also work with international organizations like the WHO to work in collaboration with local governments and data sharing especially? And what are the challenges in that data sharing yeah, WHO and FAO, the Food and Agricultural Organization, and OIE, which is the World Animal Health Organization, are all partners with various levels of activity on the ground in different countries. 
and they're all supportive of a One Health approach at a global level. Those three organizations sort of run a tripartite for One Health. Within the countries and sort of on the ground, that collaboration and data sharing you know, data sharing as being an example, can be particularly challenging when there aren't sort of protocols for it, and it's hard to figure out who's taking the initiative. We've had some success in Indonesia. They have some protocols that they're adopted and uh, disseminating now for information sharing and surveillance information in particular. As you speak, I'm also thinking this is health data and there are certain more stringent rules than, you know, maybe let's say education data to be shared. And it sort of makes sense that there would be challenges, right? Well, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's part of it. I think it's also, you know, government agencies sort of have their purview and that's what they typically do. And so asking them to share their information with other agencies has not traditionally been a norm for them. So it's getting people to break out of the mold of what they've done before. That's how it's done. <laughs> <laughs> so leading on, which regions of the world in your career at DAI and beyond have seen the most growth in recent pandemic preparedness and which regions the least? And what is your advice to both types of regions or countries? I would say Southeast Asia is probably more prepared. Growth is, a, is relative. I think after SARS and avian influenza outbreaks, there was a lot of concern about diseases with pandemic potential in Southeast Asia, and there was a lot of resources as well as incentive to invest in preparing. So I think we do see that region as typically being farther ahead. On the other end of the spectrum, West Africa had not been as affected previously, and so until the Ebola epidemic, there was less awareness and therefore maybe less incentive. And so they have been playing catch-up, but there's a lot of commitment now to try to be prepared. And we've seen instances, last year there was an outbreak of unknown origin in Liberia, and there was a very, very quick response. And ultimately, it was diagnosed as meningitis. But the response was exactly what you would have wanted to see happen. So it was a great indication that they are very aware. What is the role for the education sector and media and awareness raising campaigns in terms of pandemic threat and prevention? It's a great question. I think it's a little bit challenging because this is looking at prevention. And it's hard to get people always very excited about prevention because they don't feel the threat as imminently. So I think there is a role. And I think I would try to link it into other sorts of healthy behaviors. I mean, one of the um, questions that came up during the session, you know, somebody was talking about the importance of hand washing, and it really is always a good behavior to work on messaging for behavior change, and it can reduce the spread of 
very contagious diseases like influenza, but other diseases as well. I mean, that's probably a good place for prevention unless there's a specific issue at hand. Susan, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your time. But before I let you go, one last question is, would you like to share any words of advice with our audience? I guess advice maybe is that there aren't simple solutions, especially to a problem like this. And so maybe look for openings to try to have an impact, but also really try to foster leadership in the places where you work. And I think that that's where we've seen the things happen most quickly is if you can sell the leaders that this is something they should care about and invest in and champion, then that's where we've seen good results. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. We're grateful for your time and we wish you the best in your future endeavors. Thank you. If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.